headline in the Guardian newspaper last Monday. Homeowners shelve moving plans. This was the news that in our frosty financial climate, apparently the British homeowners are a pretty intransigent bunch. 25% in one survey of British homeowners said they couldn't move even if they wanted to. 17% said that they had scrapped plans to move next year. And four out of five homeowners said, predicted they would be staying put for the next five years. In a society known for its mobility, it seems that for now, at least, people are staying put and sitting tight. In the early church, something of a similar mood gripped the followers of Jesus. We've been learning about this church through our studies in Acts, the spreading flame. Strangely, however, it took a while for the flame to spread. To begin with, the church of Jesus was immobile and intransigent. Housed comfortably in the city of Jerusalem, believers were reticent to move out. It wasn't because of a frosty external climate. Just the opposite. The outside conditions were so favorable. In Jerusalem, the church had been birthed. In Jerusalem, the church had been established and it had grown. In the Jerusalem church, they enjoyed deep fellowship, transient worship, and had been involved in effective evangelism. Who would have wanted to move from such a church? Nobody did. As late as Acts chapter 7, no houses were going up for sale. No one was moving out. Everyone was staying put. And yet God had other ideas. Jesus had promised in Acts 1.8 that Jerusalem would be the first stop, but not the final stop for the church. The disciples would receive power when the Spirit came upon them, and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. By extraordinary means, if need be, God will evict the cozy, comfortable Jerusalem church from its comfort zone. Acts chapter 8 tells the story. Maltreatment leads to mobilization. Persecution leads to onward progress for the gospel. So let's consider this together. It's a remarkable story of God's sovereignty. As the church is finally on the move, in Acts 8. Let's turn there. If you've got a Bible, please take one and open it. There's Bibles in the pews too. And let's read the first 25 verses of Acts chapter 8. The blood of the first Christian martyr has just been freshly shed. But Stephen's death is not in vain. Notice the surprising result. Acts 8, second half of verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, 
And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. I hope you would agree with me that there is nothing worse than a stagnant church. There's nothing worse than a church that isn't going places. There's nothing worse than a church that's settled into its cozy comfort zone. A church whose apathy is leading to atrophy. By contrast, though, we've just read of a church that is on the move, a church that is dynamic, a church that is mobile. It's a church that has been mobilized by some extraordinary circumstances. And for a few minutes this morning, I would like to consider with you some important lessons from this moving church. Now, the first thing we learn relates to something this church experiences A strange providence. A strange providence experienced. 
Uh, some of you have just finished exams, I know. I don't know if you prefer, like me, to study in silence. Uh, I really can't do with music playing or, or any sort of interruption. That's just the way I am. It's funny, though, this week, as I've been studying this passage, there's been a, a tune, not so much going around my office, but going around my head. It could be the soundtrack of these verses. It's the great old hymn by William Cowper. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Oh, how mysterious is God's way in this story. How awestruck we should be in seeing how God weaves his plan and threads his purposes through these events, even through the design of suffering. Did you notice that that's how the passage begins? What a strange providence. It begins with suffering. Now, the early church has, of course, already suffered in Acts. It's not all been plain sailing for the church. The suffering has been very real, not least for the apostles who have been the particular targets. And if you've been taking note, you will realize that the suffering has been on the rise. It has been intensifying. In chapter 4, Peter and John received warnings. Don't speak at all in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, verse 40, next, all the apostles were called in. And were flogged. So warnings become beatings. And then last week, we overviewed the 6th and 7th chapters of Acts. And the suffering intensified further with the killing of Stephen. As we come to Acts chapter 8, the pressure mounts to almost an apex of affliction. In the opening verse... We read that on that day, the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out. It was great not only in its severity, but it was particularly great in its scope. The the persecution is not just intensifying, it's broadening out now. Beyond the apostles to the the church at large. You notice that verse 1 emphasizes that. All except the apostles were scattered now. The church, probably the Hellenistic Jews, particularly like Stephen, who came from a Jewish background, they became marked men and marked women. And if they were not dragged from their homes and put into jail, they were sent packing from the city. Luke's account underscores that this was an act of terrible and gross evil. In fact, verses 2 and verse 3 stand in contrast to each other. On the one hand, verse 2, godly men buried Stephen, as should have been done. But in verse 3, a godless man named Saul, who thinks he's doing God's will, began to destroy the church. He was like a wild animal seeking to tear up its prey. That's what the word destroy means. Ironically, the man who will become the lead figure in the advance of the gospel later in this book, here Saul seeks to do his worst to the gospel in the church. From a humanist perspective, it must have seemed like a dark moment for the church. Fleeing and being pursued, scattered here and there. 
Of course, we should never rest on our own human limited perspective. For verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Talk about a human plan that backfires. Talk about a divine plan in operation. Suffering mobilizes witnessing. The church is scattered, but so is the word of God. Warren Wearsby writes, persecution does to the church what wind does to sea. It scatters it and only produces a greater harvest. Oh, the devil tries to ride roughshod over the Jerusalem field of God's work. But he only succeeds in the seed being scattered further afield. Now it goes to a wider mission field. Now there are more preachers, not just the apostles now, sharing the word. Now there are more places being reached for the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Even Samaria. Verse 5. Philip, uh, who's one of the seven deacons, we met him back in chapter 6. Philip is one of those Hellenistic Jewish Christians who has been expelled. And we're told that he went down to Samaria, which was groundbreaking. See, the Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. And vis-a-vis. It was sad, really. Uh, These two groups of people had once been so close. Yet the Samaritans, pure Jews originally, had intermarried over the centuries with foreigners. They'd also interwoven into their theology some aberrant elements. And the Jews, therefore, regarded the Samaritans as heretics and as outcasts. And so this is such a striking thing that while traditional Jews wouldn't have touched the Samaritans with a barge pole, while many Jews would not even have traveled through Samaria, they would go around it the longer route, here Philip goes into Samaria, commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself. And he proclaims the Christ there. First, Philip demonstrates God's power with miraculous signs. And secondly, he declares God's word as the miracles and the signs make them pay pay more careful attention to the preached word. Verse 6, the end result was a city transformed by the gospel of God. Even in Samaria, there was great joy, you can almost underline it, in that city. Who would have thought it? What a strange providence this is. Stephen was killed to make it happen. Christians had to be dragged from their homes and thrown into prison and made to flee to make mission happen. And yet for how long would the Samaritans have remained unreached had not persecution kept the church out of Jerusalem and launched its mission into Samaria? God works in a mysterious way, friends. His wonders to perform. Do you know, often our frustrations are God's fair providences. Even as he puts me in a painful place, his purpose is for blessing. His purpose is for the onward progress of the gospel there. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break. With blessings on your head. Oh, how often we don't believe that when the clouds are hanging 
over us. Instead, we think, how could God put me here? What could God possibly do in this difficult situation? Oh, it was so much better back in Jerusalem the way things were. I don't know, maybe you're living in Edinburgh and Edinburgh wouldn't have been your first port of call as a place to stay and to minister. Perhaps you've recently been shifted uh, into a different workplace, a different office. Maybe you've been moved out of the workplace altogether and you're just struggling to cope in that new environment. Perhaps there's some illness that's come your way and it's not going away. And it seems so much easier to witness where you were. And you can't understand why God's removed you from Jerusalem where it was so much easier. And in your new circle, you're you're sulking just a little bit. And you need to know God's word would say to you today that he planned your move. He organized it. Take another look at those clouds. As, As they used to say, our disappointment is his appointment. God's taken you into Samaria to share the gospel in that family, in that office, with that illness, or whatever the situation is. Not only can he still work, despite your circumstance, but it may be the very means by which he is working. Uh, Some of us were at the National Prayer Breakfast on Wednesday, and uh, we heard a very moving uh, talk at the end by Robin Oak. Robin Oak is the former chief constable of the Isle of Man. And he was sharing with us, in part, the tragic story of how his son, his only son, was killed five years ago in a terrorist attack in Manchester. It made the news. He made the news as the reporters went and asked he and his wife to comment. And something that he said struck me. I'm sure it struck many people there. He said, don't feel sorry for us. God has worked in a surprising way. Because of all the publicity surrounding us, a new ministry has opened up for my wife and I. He said, other parents from all across the United Kingdom phone us up, drop us an email. They don't know us. But because of the news and understanding our situation, they come to us. They've lost children too. Taken in similar circumstances. And we get the opportunity to share with them how we've coped, and to share with them our faith, which many of them don't have. God has opened a door. He, he wasn't saying that this explained everything. He was saying that God can work even in the shadows. Even where you may be this morning, in your circumstance. What a stunning thing to experience. This transient church was encouraged by a strange providence. But the church, as it moves into Samaria, I want us to notice a second thing about it. The church next exposes a spiritual pretender. A spiritual pretender exposed. I remember some years ago, and perhaps you do, the coming of Billy Graham to Scotland. I think it was in 1990. And perhaps you had the experience of going into the city centre in buses and many non-Christians coming along. Because it was such a big event, they just wanted to be there. And many of them going forward at the end of services and ostensibly giving their life to Christ. And it was a a wonderful, vibrant sort of environment. 
At the same time, I also know, as you do, that in the weeks and months afterwards, some of those people just seem to drift away. Years on, we know that some of them are nowhere. Praise God, some of them are still there. But you know, it's a reminder to us that it's so important, like in Samaria, when many people are coming to faith, not to get carried away. To the point that we forget to actually analyze what's going on. Sometimes we can give false assurance to those who are not truly converted. And what a salutary tale is Simon's in that regard. As Luke's account now zooms in on this man, we begin with Simon's apparent conversion. The story is this. Simon has lived in this town in Samaria where everything's going on. He was a pretty famous guy around town. He was well known particularly for his sorcery. And he was some sort of cross between a black magic magician and David Blaine. He was, he was a, a magician. He was also something of a showman, it seems. And he became revered by the masses. He was certainly encouraging this on, boasting about himself. But they came to call him the divine power, the great power. However, Simon's godlike status was on the rocks. With the arrival of Philip, the masses have believed his gospel. Uh, The crowds have been baptized in the name of Jesus. And so the spotlight has now turned away from Simon to Philip. Or should we say from Simon to Jesus? And what's also ironic too is that Philip's miracles are so incredible that even Simon himself is astonished by them. And so in the spirit of if you can't beat them, join them. The 13th verse records that Simon himself believed and was baptized. He makes an ostensible conversion. He publicly professes his faith and he is publicly baptized. Now, we're not sure at this point at what level his faith is grounded. We do understand, don't we, that in the New Testament, there's faith and there's faith and there's faith. There's different kinds of faith and it's not all saving faith. So we don't know at this point. We're simply told that he believes and that he follows Philip around like a groupie from place to place. But the plot thickens when we come to the the next act in the story. The apostles' astonishing power. Remember, the apostles were still in Jerusalem. They'd never left the city, but they heard a report coming from Samaria that many people were being converted there. And Peter and John, two of the most prominent apostles, set out quick march to look into the truth of this. By the way, there's something of an irony here in that this is Peter and John. Uh, James and John, John, God bless him, you know, he, you remember in the Gospels, he had once goaded Jesus to call down fire from heaven upon a Samaritan city that had rejected his welcome. And they said, you know, make it like Sodom and Gomorrah, big style. And Jesus had rebuked them. Jesus had other plans for the Samaritans. And here comes Peter and John. And when they arrive at the city, the place is on fire with joy. And usually, though, while joy is present, there is something sorely absent. There is something surprisingly missing in the hearts of the people. It's very strange. Verse 15. 
when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And now we get to verse 16, which Howard Marshall, Howard Marshall is an expert in Acts and Luke. He's given his life to it. And Howard Marshall says this is the most extraordinary statement in Acts, verse 16, because the Holy Spirit had not come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit hadn't come upon any of them, yet they had believed. Yet they had been baptized into the name of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon any of them. Needless to say, this is strange. And uh, while I dare not ambush this sermon with this whole issue, we certainly can't ignore it. We have to say something about it. What shall we make of this, what is called the Samaritan Pentecost? We have a similar incident in Acts chapter 10, the Gentile Pentecost, or something else in Acts 19 as well. Well, let me tell you or give you the two basic roads that Christians take. And I emphasize Christians who have different persuasions on this. Two main interpretations, two main applications. First, some Christians believe these verses validate what they call the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. They claim that all Christians should undergo a baptism that, like the Samaritans, is distinct from and subsequent to conversion. In some cases, this second blessing may even come years after their first coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it will usually produce in the believer an abundant holiness and a a passion for the lost and for evangelism. What is the evidence for this view? You say, well, uh, the proponent would simply point to Acts chapter 8 and other passages. And say, well, this is what happened to the Samaritans. That's one view. Second perspective reads things along a different line. And people from this position say, well, we can't take Acts chapter 8 or Acts chapter 10 as normative procedure. Uh, to suggest these incidents are a pattern for all Christians ignores the fact that especially in the first ten chapters of Acts, uh, there is something of a transitional period going on. The gospel is breaking new ground. First, breaking into Samaria, which was absolutely unprecedented, and then breaking next into Gentile territory. And this groundbreaking, they say, explains the delay of the coming of the Spirit. Because Jewish Christians would have been particularly skeptical about Samaritans becoming Christians at all, never mind Gentiles, the delayed arrival of the Spirit at the hands of the Jerusalem apostles ratifies them as part of the church. R. Kent Hughes writes, This apostolic bestowal confirmed that the Samaritans were not second-class believers. As they might otherwise have been considered had the apostles not come. And the Spirit come from their hands. Now, I certainly respect those who take the first position, but the second position is uh, my own. In my view, this passage doesn't legislate for a universal theology of second blessing, even although there is much need, and perhaps underemphasized in our circles, about the repeated infilling of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer. But whatever your view, let's not miss how this plays out in this story, because I think this is not really the point. 
The point is that Simon witnesses this laying on of hands. You know, he's been following Philip around. He's peering over Philip's shoulder. Along come these two apostles. And he thinks, what a wonderful thing they've just done. Thinks to himself, I, I think I'll have some of that. Thank you very much. You know, laying hands on people. Boom. Holy Spirit comes upon them. That's pretty cool. In his past life, you know, he was familiar with conjuring up tricks. Why not add this spirit thing to his repertoire? And he nudges Peter on the shoulder and he pulls his checkbook out of his cloak and he says, how much? How much is it going to cost to get the trick? Doesn't realize that what he's asking is not only ludicrous, it is blasphemous. Witness Peter's angry rebuke. It's swift, it's severe. May your money perish with you. J.B. Phillips famously translates this, and not inaccurately, to hell with you and your money. See, Simon thought God's blessings could be bought. In fact, the word simony, interestingly, which means the attempt to pay for religious benefits, comes from this Simon, who thought he could buy and sell the Spirit, who treated God like a product, not a, a person to be revered. And what can even be possible today in our spiritual consumer culture? Simon just wanted the goods and he treated God like a commodity. And not only for this reason, in my estimation, Simon was never a Christian in the first place. Now this is also a debated point. This passage is full of debated points. Uh, some people do believe that Simon was a believer. Many don't. I don't, personally. Let me give you several reasons why I don't think he was ever a Christian. First, it would seem overly strong to say to even a sinning Christian, go to hell with your money. Perish, as the NIV translates it. Additionally, Simon's heart is said not to have been right before God. Suggesting that while his lips were saying the right thing, and while his actions were doing the right thing in baptism, well, his heart wasn't changed. Peter further calls Simon's actions wickedness in verse 22, and then he adds it on the inside, Simon is full of bitterness. And most damning of all, he even calls Simon, in verse 23, a captive to sin. A captive to sin, that in New Testament language, is a description of an unbeliever, I think. Captive, not freed by Jesus Christ at all. In other words, what we are saying is this. Simon was close to being saved, but he wasn't saved. Simon professed faith, but in the end it was proven that he didn't possess faith. No, he had that kind of faith that I think Jesus talked about with the shallow soil, where the seed seems to go in, where the plant sprouts up very quickly. It looks wonderfully impressive, but then it quickly falls away. Simon's faith seems to have been based mainly on miracles and being astonished at the wonders he witnessed. It was based upon what he could get, and it seems that he had not fully turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ with all his heart evidence further that even when Peter appeals for him to repent when he instructs Simon pray to God for your forgiveness Simon's apathetic response is insipidly lame 
Instead of praying for himself, as Peter commands, he instead answers, pray to the Lord for me. So that nothing you have said may happen to me. He seems he doesn't want the judgment to happen to him. And he says, you pray for me for this not to happen. This kind of how you hear non-Christians sometimes say, uh, put one up for me, would you? You know, if I'm going to make it into heaven, I'm going to need you on my side. You, you pray for me. And yet they won't pray for themselves. You know, we're always pleased to, to pray with people after services. If you would like to pray with somebody, we're always delighted to do that. But you know, there's a deep sense in which at some point you've got to pray for yourself. You've got to come before the throne of grace. Rodney and Peter can't go there for you. You've got to come to the cross yourself. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you must turn your life around. You must confess your sins unreservedly. You must put your faith in Jesus personally. No one can do that for you. You can't delegate that. Maybe you're here today and you've professed faith in Jesus Christ maybe some time ago. And yet even to yourself, it's very obvious from the lack of fruit, any fruit in your life, that it was nothing more than just a profession. It was nothing more than just a shallow emotion, perhaps. God invites you to come this morning. There was another opportunity for Simon here. He didn't take it, at least here. But there's another opportunity for you this morning to plant your faith in Jesus Christ. I plead with you, don't act as if you're in when you're out. Because one day the consequences will come for that. There's a tragic part of the story of Pilgrim's Progress came to mind this week. You know the great allegory by John Bunyan? Pilgrim's Progress, the end of the story. Christian, he's been on this trek to the celestial city. He comes to the waters of death with hopeful. And it's a real struggle for him to get across. It's not easy as he thought it would be. But he manages to get to the celestial shore. But there's another character called ignorance. And ignorance is also there. And ignorance has a false assurance of faith. And we're told that ignorance was carried across the water easily by a man named Vain Hope. When he gets to the other side of the water, he comes up to the gates of the celestial city and he knocks on the door. And the doors don't open. And we're told that the king sent out a couple of his shining ones to take the man, to bind him hand and foot, to take him round to a door in the side of the hill and to cast him in. And Bunyan, in the second last sentence of the whole allegory, writes this, Then I saw that there is a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. Are you close but yet so far today? From, the God, from God and from the gospel? Do you come here week by week, outwardly doing the right things, singing the right things, praying the right things, but inwardly you're nowhere? Dear friend, don't make the mistake ignorance made that Simon made. Repent even today, and Jesus will save you. And if you are a Christian, may God comfort you today May Acts chapter 8 encourage you that God is working his purposes out in mysterious ways, even in your situation.
He's calling us to be on the move, to leave Jerusalem and to head into Samaria. Let us pray. Father, we confess to you that we do often want to just stay in our spiritual comfort zone. Lord, we shun what is difficult, what is hard, what is painful. But Lord, strangely this morning, we want to thank you for some of the pain that you bring into our lives. Some of which even now we can see the fruits of. Lord, we pray that you would give us a greater trust in your sovereignty. Help us, Lord, to move out and to share the gospel where we are, wherever we are. May none of us today follow Simon's pattern and example. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to sing together. William Cowper's hymn and hopefully cement in our minds something of